I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Jerry Krasnick is one of those old friends who still calls just to say hello. He thinks about others. That's one of the many reasons he was one of the nation's great baseball writers for three decades. Jerry always thought about the fans, what they wanted or should know about the game and its many characters. He found and told stories for those who couldn't be behind the scenes with him. We're lucky to hear Jerry share some memorable ones from his career. What do you say we talk some baseball? Well, Jerry, it's so great to have you here on the show. I love talking with you over the years, and I'm so glad to be talking to you now. Yeah, it's great to be here, Todd. We go back a ways uh, to some pretty fun times when Cincinnati was maybe the center of the sporting universe, but the baseball universe for sure in the late 1980s and early uh, 1990s. Yeah, we crossed paths when I was just starting out and you were the Reds beat writer. Actually, when I think of you, Jerry, you know, I obviously think of baseball and 30 years of covering baseball that you, that you did. But I think of three o'clock in the morning <laughs> and not a bar, not a bar. Think about this. Not a bar at three o'clock. Take us to the Waffle House at three o'clock in the morning in 1990. Well, I believe it must have been after like game two of the World Series, I think. And we were at the Post, which was the PM papers. So we had the luxury of staying there and waiting guys out and getting some good detail stuff. We filed our stories and dragged ourselves out of that Riverfront Stadium press box. And I don't know, we probably had a flight at about seven or eight. It was a direct flight to San Francisco, I think. And it's like, well, you're not going to drive home and sleep for an hour. No, so no. let's go get like a triple ham and cheese omelet and, <laughs> and hash browns and and four, you know, keep sending in the coffee and, and get to about five and then hoof it out to the airport and go cross country. And then you get to the ballpark. And I think we checked into our hotel, but then you have to head out to the ballpark for the game day workouts and write your stories. So that was back when we were young enough to be able to go completely without sleep, right? Oh yeah, no sleep, right. Yeah. 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 And so uh, I do remember that. And I was just looking at each other and, you know, now you'd say, boy, what a bad experience. But like, that's all part of the romance of the thing, right? Is going through those things. And uh, I do remember that, uh, that session at the Waffle House. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember when we actually finally got to the workout in Oakland on Zero Sleep. And I think I was talking to Hal Morris of the Reds. And I realized there was something in my rental car that I needed to get for my computer. And so I walked out into the parking lot of the old Oakland Alameda Coliseum. Boy, what a dump. And this giant parking lot with, you know, no sense of where you are. And I looked and there were like 200 white rental cars. <laughs> and I had no fob. <laughs> that was pre-fob. No fob, no sleep. And I'm walking around. It felt like an hour trying to figure out what the hell, what car is mine? And so when I think of rental cars, white rental cars, if I rent one now, they say, what color do you want? Anything but white. You know, when I think about baseball and the history of baseball, it's so intertwined with writing, you know, from the back to the earliest days of the game. What is it about the nature of baseball and writing over the years that has made it such a special thing? Well, look, you look at guys like Roger Angel or, you know, 
Shirley Povich or, I mean, there's a million of them, uh, Peter Gammons, you know, in later years or whatever. I think there's a pace to the game, certainly. I've covered other sports. You know, you, you have a an NBA game and it's 125 to 122. You know, it's like, <laughs> what are you really going to pick out? Hockey, it's so end to end. Baseball, there's always that moment where it's like, what's the manager thinking? You know, there's the chess match of strategy. There's the pitcher-batter confrontation, which can go on for four or five minutes. You know, it's a series of isolated moments. And there also has been sort of a history of more access. You know, writers could go in and, and seek out players at their lockers before the game and really get to know what they're thinking. And you'd get to know the personalities. And, you know, the personalities themselves, I just have always found, at least when I covered it, and you were around in those days with people like Pete Rose. And <laughs> I mean, there are so many of them. They were fascinating people, you know, good or bad. They had their personal quirks, but they gave you the time. It wasn't a regimented thing where Bill Belichick is opening it up and you have five minutes, you know, to seek out a lineman or somebody. You would get to know these guys a little bit. And, and they were good talkers and, and really interesting people, a lot of them. Yeah, and when you think about it, baseball and horse racing and boxing were the three sports in the 1950s. And really what they all have in common is people like to talk about them, you know, and there's a lot of gambling going on with the three, but they like to talk. And I think part of the, the love of baseball and the love of the writing about baseball is just the conversations and the fact that the writers such as yourself would get to know these people and then the audience would get to trust the writers because they, they were the conduit. And I think it just lent itself to that type of storytelling. I mean, I remember once I, Lou Pinella messed up a double switch <laughs> and I really wrote about it and kind of made fun of him, you know, for it. And he wasn't real happy about it the next day, <laughs> but it was like, it's easier. I think in football, yeah, you might have a, a case of clock mismanagement or something. But every day in baseball, it's like, why did you bring in this guy? Why did you hit this pinch hitter? And a lot of times there are things going on that the fans don't even know about and the mm -hmm. writers don't know about. Maybe this pinch hitter was hung over. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he had a fear of hitting against a certain guy or maybe he was having trouble at home, you know, family problems and his mind wasn't where it should be. I mean... A lot of these strategic decisions, I think, fans always think, well, why did this guy blow this this way? And they don't know, and we didn't know either. And I guess we would always try to pull out from the manager exactly why. And sometimes we'd ferret that out, and sometimes we wouldn't. So in 1988, you left your home state of Maine, and you moved to Cincinnati. And the Cincinnati Post, the afternoon paper, made you the beat writer to cover the Reds. So in the spring of 88, you walk into the manager's office and spring training facility down in Florida, and it's Pete Rose. Yeah, I mean, look, I was, you know, a lot of kids now you see get jobs, and God bless them, they might be 22 or 23 out of college and, and get their first beat job, and that's tremendous. But I was 29 years old, and I moved. We were actually going to get, my wife and I were engaged, and we were get, got married in the middle of my first season when we moved out to Cincinnati. But I think it was right around St. Patrick's Day. They didn't fill the beat job until late. And I get out of the airport in Tampa, drive to Plant City, <laughs> <laughs> home of the Strawberry Festival. The game was done and nobody was around. 
And I walk in and open the door to the manager's office and Pete Rose is sitting there. And that's pretty daunting. You remember Pete, like he would do things like he'd have shampoo at his desk and he'd like <laughs> rub it in his hair and then sit there for 10 more minutes and then go in and take a shower. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, such a good haircut, right? Pete yeah, always such he had to preserve that Mo Howard haircut, you know? <laughs> I remember walking in and saying, Pete, I'm, and my voice is shaking and I'm nervous as hell. And Pete, I'm Jerry Krasnick and, you know, I'm the new beat writer. And he was cool. I mean, he was fine. Um, I remember, I think we were like two months in and I was late for an interview, you know, like an interview thing. And he said to somebody, where's that Tim guy? <laughs> <laughs> and then finally he learned my name and he called me Kraz. And you can not like a lot of what Pete Rose did. But that doesn't prevent you from having a huge soft spot for him personally, right? Right. Just as one of the amazing, most fascinating human beings and characters I've ever met anywhere. And it's funny, I, you know, he, um, the thing that stuck with me as somebody who always treasures the language as a writer was Pete's mangled syntax. You know, he would say, he said to me once, um, you know, I was writing a story and he said, you're making a mountain out of a mole. <laughs> <laughs> when Bart Giamatti was uh, deciding his uh, gambling thing, Pete said, all I want is an impractical decision maker. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, like, like it was things like that. And they were so funny. He would do them all the time. And Todd, you probably remember Pete, everything frame of reference wise was 1960s television. You know, he he called uh, Paul O'Neill Jethro because he looked like Max Bear in the Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, he called uh, Tom Browning Otis because he looked the like town the drunk. town drunk in Mayberry. Right. Right. He would call him Puggy, and then it was Otis. Right. So he'd alternate between Puggy and Otis. Uh, and then obviously he had things like Chris Sabo calling him Spuds McKenzie. You know, when that <laughs> yeah. came out, and like... Everybody looked and said, you know, with the goggles and the goofy kind of haircut, he does look like Spuds McKenzie. So Pete had this like natural sort of thing that I, I think it was the same reason why when you'd go to autograph shows or something, people looked at him like he's the guy you wanted to be sitting next to at a bar. You know, he related to the common man and the regular guy better than anybody I've ever encountered in any sport anywhere, ever. And he knew by talking to you as a writer that he was really talking to the fans. I think the thing with Pete that the writers loved the most was, uh, and Lou Pinella was, I love Lou Pinella just as much. I mean, he was great, but Lou was a bad loser. I mean, if you went in there after a game. Oh, yeah. And you asked him a question and he'd say, look, my friend. <laughs> that was the key words right there. Look, my friend was like, incoming. <laughs> so usually what we would do is let like some radio guy ask the first question after the loss and Lou yeah, would let say, him hit the tripwire. Yeah, let him step on the on the minefield. But Pete was the opposite. Like Pete, if the team lost a game and it was bad and the players didn't want to talk, Pete would fill up your notebook and he would bail you out. I mean he would he would be funny. He would say whatever he had to say. He was tremendous and he carried a lot of us. It was really almost a thing where you didn't want to fall into that trap, right? Where every day you just quote Pete because there were a lot of interesting guys on those teams, but it was hard not to fall in that trap just because he was 
he was such a gem when it came to giving quotes and helping you write your story. The next year, 1989, was when the gambling scandal hit with Pete Rose. What was it like to be there every day on the front lines of that? Well, it was funny because in spring training, I think there were, he didn't show up for a day or two. And he came back and he said, uh, they said, what's this all about? And he said, the commissioner wanted my advice on something. (laughs) And I was pretty new to the beat. So I was like, maybe the commissioner wanted his advice on something. And, (laughs) And the people who were around longer than me said, no, there's something going on here. And I believe it was Murray Chass from the New York Times reported that it was a Peter Uberoth, I guess, at the time, right? Called them in and had said, you know, they had issues with the gambling. And uh, he came back and it was one of those things where, okay, today something's going to come down. Well, nothing came down, but you had to be there anyway. And, you know, you'd say, well, can I take today maybe and just take a day and not be near the park, but you couldn't, you had to be there. And uh, day after day after day, and then the season started. And, you know, this is obviously pre-cable TV, pre-internet, but they we had television crews from the different networks following us every day. They became like surrogate beat writers. Every day it was like, okay, the Reds lost the game and somebody would ask a question or two, And our news desk would say, hey, there's a story that uh, Pete was going to, you know, that there were some betting people who were threatening to break Pete's legs. (laughs) And we're going to we're going to write about this tomorrow. So like I was the sacrificial lamb and had to say, "Uh, Pete, uh, there's a story coming out about this. And, uh, you know, what what do you have to say about it? And he didn't have anything to say. And. He really held up pretty well under the circumstances, but it was a a gauntlet. I mean, and it was August before the thing came down. So there was pressure and tension and stuff every day. I I think the the one thing that to me was interesting was I wasn't there the year before, you know, the years before when they had Tommy Giosa and Ron Peters and all these like 'er ne'er-do-well guys apparently who were hanging around. And um, it was funny because uh, Larry Starr, who was the Reds trainer, who you remember, Larry told me a story once where they went to New York, I guess, and and they got off the bus and Pete was looking for the track immediately. And he said to Larry, he said, Larry, who's your bookie? And Larry <laughs> said, Larry said, he asked it almost like you'd say, who's your dentist? <laughs> <laughs> like, like Pete just thought everybody had their own bookie, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> In every town, too. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, there was a lot of stuff that happened before I got there. But yeah, it was a tough year and it was a tough year for Pete. He held up well, but I could only, it was, it was just a drain emotionally for all of us. Pete being from Cincinnati, that was such a sad, sad story because everybody in town loved the hometown guy, you know, and he had such a fabulous career as a player, all time hits leader. Do you remember the press conference at Riverfront Stadium, the room when he addressed everybody about the suspension? I do remember it. You know, I think our news people were writing the main story. I, I had I had a story I think I was doing on Tommy Helms, who was like taking over for PETA's manager. But I remember going in there into that room. And the one thing I remember was it was in this sort of ante room in the basement, I guess, of Riverfront Stadium. And I just remember the number of people in there, and it was August in Cincinnati, 
and it was like a blast furnace. You know, you walked into it and it was like going into the, the corridors of hell, <laughs> you know, heat-wise. It was just, it had to be 130 degrees in there. It was just hit you in the face as you went in there. And, um, you know, and then obviously like it unraveled. I remember we were in Pittsburgh the next week and I'm in the clubhouse and all of a sudden they say, Archie Amati just passed. You know, right. he died. Week later, yeah. Yeah, and it was like, well, if Pete was ever going to get back into baseball, this might put the kibosh on that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that was the sort of uh, postscript to it that people don't always talk about, but that was, you know, a huge emotional aspect of that story as well. And then what's really crazy is you have that just tragic story all year, every day. And then the very next year, the Reds go wire to wire and win the World Series. So you have the total opposite feeling in Cincinnati. So now you're covering that every day. That had to be quite a quite a change for you. Yeah, I mean, uh, Lou was tremendous. I mean, Lou was a guy who, uh, but Lou was like, he was a competitor. He had a short fuse too. You had to be careful with the way you sort of ask Lou questions. He had a heart of gold. I mean, I was probably the nice, one of the nicest people I've ever met, but he was a bad loser. I remember one day, I think we were in the office early. The Reds had won a game on Saturday. The next day, they put out like their Sunday lineup or something, like, you know, their their backups. And and I asked Lou a question about uh, why the lineup was different. And Lou, for some reason, was in a bad mood that day. And he has the lineup card and he, he throws the lineup card and he goes, you think you're so smart? You make out the lineup. <laughs> And Hal is just sitting there laughing, you know, and Hal goes, I would have picked it up and started to make it out. And I said, I wasn't <laughs> going to do that with Lou. But Lou was just, you know, he was a competitor and, you know, you're around those teams. I mean, what an amazing group of talking about running the gamut from Barry Larkin, who was the, you know, hometown kid and Michigan grad and just classy and Eric Davis, who was supposed to be the next Willie Mays and, you know, the Nasty Boys and Jose Rijo and rounding through a perfect game when I was there and Paul O'Neill from Columbus and Sabo and Hal Morris. I mean, uh, it was just a great collection of guys and a really interesting, and sometimes for me, it was even the guys like the Herm Winningham or the Glenn Braggs or the, the bench guys, you know, who were just as interesting. It was a really fun team to cover and wire to wire, like you said, until I got to the World Series and, and swept the A's. It was a pretty magical season. And then you had the Nasty Boys. And when I think about the Nasty Boys, Norm Tarleton, Randy Myers, and Rob Dibble, I mean, Dibble is always the one that comes to my mind. The other two were great pitchers also. But Dibble, he had his own issues, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they all were their own characters. You know, Randy Myers had the soldier of fortune kind of shtick and yeah didn't he have like a grenade in his locker yeah i had a grenade in his locker and that sort of thing and he had his thing norm was the guy i think he majored in like he was a triple major at rice i think it was like philosophy religion and something else and and norm was really smart they called him the the sheriff and norm had kind of a he was kind of like the closet wise ass you know (laughs) He struck out 10 guys in four innings in San Francisco once, and everybody kind of thought that he was doing something with the baseball. And you'd go up to him, and he'd he'd wink at you and kind of talk about the wind and the way the wind was blowing and that sort of thing. And 
I mean, Norm was actually the guy who gave me one of my favorite scoops. He was such a he was such a great guy. Um, I remember this. There was a game against the Dodgers, and Mike Sosha was hitting, and everybody remembers the game where Norm was running the bases and ran over Sosha and steamrolled him. But there was a game where Norm was pitching and Sosha was hitting and Norm hit him with a pitch and nobody knew anything about it. And I, I came downstairs to do my interviews and you remember down outside the clubhouse, it was all gasoline fumes and the the players would go to their, their cars. Well, Norm sees me walking. And Norm comes over and says, aren't you going to ask me why I hit Sosha? And I said, "Um, should I be asking? And he said, yeah, if I were you, I'd ask. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, well, why'd you hit Sosha? And he says, because he was peeking back and he was stealing signs. And next time, if he does it, I'm going to hit him in the head. (laughs) Wow. So I said, well, am I, can I quote you on that? And Norm goes, absolutely. (laughs) So I go upstairs, write the story and file it. And I think the headline was signs stealing larceny turns Charlton nasty. So I walked downstairs to go to my car and steamer Stan Williams was there with Larry Rothschild. I think Larry was the bullpen coach, maybe, or might've been the pitching coach. And I told Larry what was going in the paper, you know, that day. And all the color drains from Larry's face. And he <laughs> says, you can't write that. Like you, <laughs> you have to go upstairs and like tell him you can't write that. <laughs> I, said, Larry, it's, I said, Larry, sorry, it's already filed. It's already and, being um, delivered. And I came in the next day and Tommy Lasorda was going crazy. You know, in the, I mean, it was huge. Everybody was just jammed into his office and everybody went to Norm and Norm said, I don't have anything to say. And, you know, I think he gets suspended for like a week. But I remember going to Norm later and saying, look, hey, I'm sorry I got you in trouble. And he said, look, it was a dumb thing to say, but I said it and I got to live with it. And I oh, thought, wow. there's like a, there's a man, you know, <laughs> it's, a stand up guy, right? He didn't, he didn't blame me or say, hey, he, it was off the record or he took I it out of context. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was tremendous about it. He was great. Norm came in one day, I remember, with video. He was like hunting alligators or something, I guess, in uh, on some lake in Texas. And he had this video of himself, like the gator would swim it with a boat and they try to pull it up and wrestle it. And, <laughs> and I said, this guy is, he was actually probably the craziest of the three. But obviously, you know, getting to dibble quickly, like he was the guy who just, it was always something. You know, he just had no impulse control and wait through he threw a ball at a, at a runner he threw a ball into the stands he threw a bat at the backstop i think terry pendleton got a hit he threw a there was a game in chicago where doug desenzo bunted on him and dibble just drilled him in the back as he was running down the first baseline i remember the game where he got a save and i got on the elevator quickly to get downstairs and Joe Kay, who was the Associated Press writer, I said, what's going on? Like, nobody's here when I got downstairs. And Joe Kay said, did you see what happened? And I said, no. And he said, Dibble was mad at the way he pitched, so he took the ball, threw it about 300 feet into the center field stands. 
and yeah, it hit like a like an elementary school teacher or something. Hit a school teacher and like injured her, <laughs> and so so he did that. Well, I remember, I remember 1990 playoffs against the Pirates. Dibble was making his, he was on a crusade about his contract. He was going to get a new deal. And so he knew he had the national media. So every day he's talking up his contract and how underpaid he is. And it just became this daily thing. Like, dude, you're in the playoffs. You're trying to win the championship. But, but anyway, so he's going on and on. And I was in this little crowd around him and sitting next, the locker next to him was Charlton. And Charlton was listening, just looking up and listening to him. And meanwhile, Charlton had a little like figurine that was a Rob Dibble figurine and it had a noose around its neck and it was hanging from his locker. And he's listening to Dibble complain about his contract. And then he finally looks up at me and the other writer and says, that boy's got more problems than a run over dog. <laughs> well, besides all the craziness of the players and Lou, who I loved also, I mean, Lou, Lou blew me up a couple times where he just, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. And he, I thought I've, he was going to fight me one day, but I loved him. <laughs> but besides the players and Lou, you had the owner, Marge Schott. And before we leave Cincinnati and go off to other baseball things, I wanted to ask you about Marge Schott because she was like straight out of a baseball movie. You know, she was like this uh, widowed uh, car dealer, had this St. Bernard dog. She smoked like a forest fire. And there was just always something going on with Marge. Everybody just knew her as Marge. Tell me about your experiences with Marge. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because you think about it, she was kind of ahead of her time, right? You know, she was a woman in the old boys club and she was running a team. And what was the line they had? Like, Marge Schott's employees wish that she treated them like dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, Shotzi had a better better life. Yeah, so, look, I, I don't think it was any secret that Marge maybe liked to uh, imbibe here and there. So there were writers, I think, who said, hey, I'll wait until 6 or 7 o'clock and call her at home and see what I can get. I didn't have a, much of a relationship with her. She She didn't really know the players that much. I remember after the winning the World Series in 1990, they had the ring ceremony the next year. And she would get out there and say, you know, here's one of my favorite players. And he's a product of Cincinnati. And he's one of my the greats, Barry Larkin. And then she would give some intro to Tom Browning. And then at the end, it was like, Scudder, Hammond. <laughs> <laughs> like, some like guy, she, just some guy. Just some guy. You know, and they... You remember the story, I think, where she didn't uh, have any kind of post-World Series spread. So I think it was like Rick Mailer and Billy Hatcher and these guys like went out to a, a Whataburger or a Roy Rogers or something, you know. Yeah, the, <laughs> night, the night they won the World Series, they brought burgers back to the team hotel. Yeah, she was, just, yeah. she was just, you know, legendarily cheap. I was once at a Reds game in the dining room before like a Sunday afternoon game and they're serving breakfast and it's like a salad bar setup and Marge is directly across from me and I'm scooping the eggs onto my plate and she reached in with her bare hands and scooped out the hash browns and put them on her plate. <laughs> it's just, after that, I've never really been able to eat hash browns again. <laughs> it's it you're traumatized by her hash brown etiquette I yeah think. now she at least i was in the dining room for the media you once got banned from the dining room by march shot tell us about that yeah it was funny because i, I think the previous year 
Hal McCoy and Rob Parker had gotten banned from the, the dining room and they did these barred by Marge hats and uh, yeah. <laughs> and they became like a the, the must have fashion item, you know, and 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 I wasn't banned. And, you know, I almost felt kind of like left out a little bit. And uh, <laughs> I need to I get banned. Yeah. But, but I wasn't going to like write something just to get banned. But I remember it was I think it was a Friday, maybe a, a night game and it was raining and I needed some notes. You know, you need those. You're scrambling for those early notes. And the dog at the time, it was Shotzi 02, I believe. A sequel. Yeah. <laughs> Would be out on the field. And it was a nice dog. I, I love dogs. It was a St. Bernard. But this dog, would it would chase players. It would nip at them. It would steal the, the gloves and, like, run across the field. It would defecate on the AstroTurf. I mean, it was doing a lot of stuff that really was becoming more than just your cute mascot type of stuff. So I asked Tim Belcher, who was one of the all-time great straight shooters. He was a guy who... Red pitcher. Yeah, yeah if, if he didn't pitch well, he would leave early. He would write a note out and tape it to his locker. Like, For quotes. Yeah, yeah, like, hey, guys, you know, I'm in a bad mood, so I can't talk, but here's what I can say. You know, my slider was horseshit tonight. This pitch was, you know, whatever. Like, he was amazing. He says to me, look, we all love dogs and we all love pets, but I just don't think that if you took a survey in this clubhouse, most guys would see the value or enjoy this dog being around and just causing all the havoc that it's causing. So Uh a light bulb went off in my head like this is a pretty good lead note. This is a chance to get barred. (laughs) I didn't really think that way, but it was in the back of my head. And I wrote the note. And the next day, I remember sitting in the press box in the back row, I think, because it was a Saturday and I didn't want to, you know, I was just kind of hanging out. And I heard her walking out and saying my name, like, Krasnick, Krasnick, like she couldn't pronounce it. And she banned me from the press box, the dining room. Um, Yeah. And so it was, I had arrived, but the best part was Belcher, who... I guess around the, I don't know, fourth or fifth inning, all of a sudden the guy from, what was it, La Rosa's, I think, was that the pizza place? Comes in with about six pizzas and a bunch of subs and a note that says, here's some food to share, you you to share with your scooped friends. <laughs> and he signed it, I think he signed it, Woofs and Licks. <laughs> <laughs> and then he pops his head out of the dugout and he tipped his cap up at the press box. It was like the greatest, I don't know, it was just so fun. And it was such a funny thing that happened, but it was pretty much life as usual under March. Well, I went back and looked for a story about you being barred, and I actually found something. And your quote about being barred was, quote, I only wish she had banned me before they served that liver the other night. <laughs> Which is- which is a, like a really good quote that I didn't remember. So uh, <laughs> thanks for bringing that to my attention. Well, now we have it on the record. Well, you know, we talked a lot of Cincinnati, and it was really, when you think about just a few years of your career, you covered baseball on a national basis and really some of the greatest moments of all time. But before I switch gears to the national scene, there's one other story involving a woman in baseball that you were present for, and that was on July 25th, 1990. In San Diego, 
and Roseanne Barr sang the national anthem. And you were there. What do you remember about that night? Yeah, I believe it was between games of a doubleheader. And San Diego was always a great trip. It was that old Jack Murphy Stadium. You know, it was just the best place to go. The weather was always perfect. And we're sitting in the press box. And all of a sudden, Roseanne comes out to sing the anthem. And I'm thinking, I didn't realize Roseanne could sing. Well, she couldn't sing. I mean, you <laughs> I'm one of those people who thinks that the national anthem doesn't necessarily have to be played before every sporting event. You know, I, I, I'm not like, I, I respect the military and, you know, I respect the anthem. I stand for the anthem. You got to show res some respect, right, for the anthem. And it was just, it was awful. She was just, she couldn't sing. She was screeching. <laughs> and the... Um, I can still hear I can still hear the word ramparts. That one's stuck <laughs> in my head. Oh, and the fans were just oh, they were booing like crazy. And then at the end of it, I believe it was Mark Parent, maybe was the catcher or somebody. She saw him do it, or she had the really inspired idea of grabbing her crotch and spitting. And it was just, it was pretty bad. You know, it was just a really bad scene. The postscript to it was, you know, you get done. It's the West Coast. I go to bed. I don't know what time it was, 2 o'clock. And my phone rings about 6 in the morning, right? And this guy calls and says, I'm calling from a publication in Florida, and I'd like to talk to you about the Roseanne thing. And I said, well, okay, I'll give you some what I thought. And he said, well, we can give you like $100 if you can go around and get some quotes from... Reds players and people around the team about how awful the Roseanne Barr thing was. And I said to the guy, what publication are you with? And he said, uh, the National Enquirer. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so I said, this was one of them. I don't know what, what prompted me to say this, but I said, you know who would be really good for you to call on this? Marty Brenneman. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't know if Marty ever knew Red announcer, long time announcer. Legend. I don't know if Marty ever knew that that they called him or if he if it was the National Enquirer when they called. But I just thought that it, the two things struck me as funny. Like if you're gonna talk to anybody about this, it probably should be Marty Brandman. I'm sure Marty lit it up. <laughs> I'm looking at the list of things that you covered. Kurt Gibson's Homer off Eckersley, the 89 Earthquake series, Joe Carter's Homer off Mitch Williams. The Smoltz, Jack Morris, Game 7 duel in Minnesota. Cal Ripken's record-setting game. On and on and on. Piazza's homer after 9-11. Mark McGuire's homer. Cubs-Indians, Game 7. So many, many just indelible baseball moments. Baseball is really about also the characters in the game, and we've talked about some of them. Besides the Cincinnati guys, who comes to mind for you all the years that you covered baseball is just good guys to deal with, but also just guys who are amazing players. You know, there, there are the good guys. There's, you know, Walt Weiss was a guy I, I covered. Uh, Jeff Reed, who was a backup catchers could be some of the best guys. You know, they would be. Why is that? Why is it? You know, I think it's because they have to interact with the pitchers, but they're also hitters and they are behind the plate. They see the game unfold. I think that's why you see all these guys who become managers, you know, the Bruce Boshies. And because a lot of hitters, let's face it, Lou Pinella was a, a really good manager. Lou didn't really like pitchers. 
<laughs> oh, no, no. He didn't. Uh, he couldn't relate to pitchers. So Larry Rothschild had to be kind of the buffer, you know, like when Lou wanted to yell at a pitcher, Larry would kind of say, look, I'll talk to him. But the backup catcher understands what the pitcher is going through. So, I mean, I could give you a list if I, if I thought of it of 20 guys like that who were amazing. You know, Jose Rijo was a, a joy back in the game in the day. You know, I mentioned Barry Larkin, just the quintessential professional guy, you know, understood uh, being a leader, um, you know, that kind of thing. Nationally, you know, the Hall of Fame type of guys, one guy who stuck with me was Tony Gwynn. Yeah, right, right. You know, Tony Gwynn, he was one of those guys who always kind of feigned annoyance when the writers would come by and he'd say, I got nothing to say about that. But I will say this. <laughs> yeah. And then he'd go on for like 20 minutes and fill your notebook. One of my favorite stories was it was I was in Denver and I used to have to go around and do these 60, 70 inch features and takeouts on guys. And I set something up with Tony Gwynn's agent when we were at Jack Murphy Stadium. And I think the clubhouse opened at three, but I wanted to get there early. And I got there about 2.30. And the clubby, whatever, it was his job. It wasn't his fault, but he was giving me a hard time. And he said, you can't come in. And I said, well, Tony said he'd meet with me. He went in and asked Tony and Tony said, yeah, let him in. I spent an hour and a half in the video room with Tony Gwynn. Wow. Breaking down his thought process and breaking down at bats and how Pritchard's approached him. And this was in the mid nineties. You know, this was... It was seriously like watching, talking to a surgeon when he's in the operating room. Right, know, it was just, right. it, it was amazing. And he, we talked about everything, you know, uh, the 5.5 hole in left field and how he would tailor his swing to get to that. We talked about bats and he told me the story about a bat that he owned that it was like the perfect quality bat and he called it nine grains of pain. <laughs> and this <laughs> this bat, he just, he was hitting like 400 with the thing. And one day, I don't know, it was in a game, whatever happened, it got hit in the wrong spot, like at the end, and the bat broke. Oh. And it's like when they say a bat died a hero, like that's the old line that they have. Tony was probably just like in tears when it happened. But I think he took it and glued it together and brought it back to his house and put it on the wall, that kind of yeah. thing. But to me, when when the guys like that let you inside their craft, you know, we talked about a guy like Greg Maddox, for instance. You would, he would get on the stage at a big World Series game. He would be the most boring guy you ever met. You'd say this guy has nothing to say, and then you'd you'd sit down with him at his locker. I just story once about pitchers who who never walk anybody. You know, why is their control so good? And Maddox just talked about the rep repetition that he would exercise and the muscle memory of having everything be in the same spot every time. Like if his stride was exactly in the same place and his arm slot was exactly in the same place, how he goes, I don't know how you can't throw strikes. You know, <laughs> he was brilliant. And he would impart those things when you got him alone at his locker, but in a big group, he would hold back. He just, uh, he wouldn't do that. And I think that was the challenge as a writer was to try to get those guys in their environment where that was the favorite stories to me was 
talking to players about the art of hitting or, you know, Walt Weiss told me that he had a, a glove that he called the creature and he would restitch it every year and, and just use it for years and years. It looked like a little league glove, but talking to players about their equipment and you could get stories about it. Players have a love for it. And I think that's the thing about baseball that there is just those stories you really have to work at the gap. But when you do get them, there's just a huge sense of gratification. How did you get him, Jerry? What was what worked for you in terms of getting a guy like Tony Gwynn or Gary or uh, Greg Maddox to sit down and really dissect something like that? How did you? How did how, what worked for you? My goal when I went in to do a story with a guy was, if I don't tell somebody something new, something new in this story, then why am I doing it, right? And my threshold was more three or four things, you know. So I would like when the internet came up. There wasn't that much excuse. The best thing for me was when I got a Nexus account, like a Nexus Lexus account, because I would just go in and get all these stories and block save them and read them through and read everything. And if there was a story about a guy, I'd say, okay, I can use that as a starting point, but I'll just keep asking questions until he gets beyond it because there's always something better. And the other thing a lot of times, you know, Todd, is it's not always the guy himself, a lot of times it's his teammates or somebody else that's going to give you the best stuff. Well, it's all about having a curious mind. And you kept that throughout your career as a baseball writer. I think you once said the the job never felt like work. Is that true? I remember various times like sitting in sitting in the stands at Dodger Stadium. You've been to Dodger Stadium. Gorgeous. And just looking out on a on a Sunday afternoon when there's not a cloud in the sky and it's 76 degrees and there's palm trees and saying, like, I'm actually getting paid to do this. How can you complain about that? And writers, we were inveterate complainers. You know? <laughs> I think it was part of the writer shtick almost at times, you know, just uh, let's grouse about things and complain about things. But I think when you scratch a you know, writer and get below the surface, most of the writers who do this just love this and really realize that this is what they were meant to do. And the one thing that you and I share, I hope and I think, is a respect for the romance of the business. Well, I think you're right. You know, we, we did a lot of whining at the time. <laughs> but when you look back, we got to be in the places where the fans wanted to be. And if we were doing our job the way we were supposed to, we were asking the questions that they had and writing for them and not for ourselves and being a conduit to the fans. And um, I think we were fortunate to have that. And you did it for so long as well as anyone. You you started out doing American Legion baseball as a tryout in Biddleford, Maine, population 20,000. And then you spent all those years around the nation covering baseball. It's been a great time just chatting with you about this. I, I'm sure you have a lot of great moments that you treasure. Yeah, a lot of good memories, Todd. And a lot of them were with guys like you and you know, the other people that we had on those staffs, I think we had a real bond. And that's one of the things about what you're doing here I enjoy is just listening to these people because it comes through in all of their voices. You know, I think they all have the same memories. It was it was the camaraderie. A lot of it was about the job, but a lot of it was about the gags and the and the traveling and the cars from the from the hotel, the you know, from the airport to the hotel and trying to catch a flight and, you know, all the mishaps and late night, you know, going to the bar, going to dinner together or whatever. And Waffle House at three in the morning. <laughs> Waffle House at three in the morning. I mean, that's a, 
That's I vividly remember that. Just don't get a white rental car. Don't get a white rental car. That's uh, on the list of top 10 uh, sports writer faux pas. That has to rank in the top about two or three, I would think. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Jerry. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun reminiscing. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for listening to Pressbox Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcast or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Sarah Wilgroup, I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network.